0: You're listening to a talk from our uni Church conference, Glory and Shame of the Cross. It's part of a series, so make sure you listen to them in order. Uh, wasn't it great to get to know the guys? I'm not sure I'd want to go in a car with any of them now. And can I say, in one question there, these guys showed themselves to be complete amateurs. Okay, the, the, the question, what would your wife say is your best quality? There is only one answer to that question. The ability to choose a fantastic wife. That is the answer to that question. Your right. 28 years of marriage has taught me that. How do, you, how do you capture a person's life? So when all their days are gone, they're lying cold in the grave. How do you sum up a life? There's a very famous tombstone in a Sydney cemetery that says, Here lies William Jackson. He was an accountant which when you think about it is kind of sad isn't it that of all of his life the the greatest triumph his his greatest moment was learning how to use an excel spreadsheet but that's actually how we capture people's lives isn't it we we look for their greatest achievements I often read the obituaries in the paper you know an obituary is the kind of article that's written about someone after they've died and they're always about people's greatest achievements. it's Reading obituaries is what middle-aged people do. It's kind of a glimpse into my near future. And so, and obituaries always focus on people's greatest achievements. And sometimes they're really impressive. Like Robin Olds. Robin Olds' obituary calls him the World War II fighter ace who became an aviation legend. And this guy, he flew 65 different planes, Over a 30-year career, he was named the hottest ace of the Vietnam War. He was the best pilot of the whole of the Vietnam War. He shot down 24 enemy planes in battle, six of them in one dogfight, which is more than anybody ever has in the history of aviation. More than that, when he'd been at university, who was an All-American football player at West Point, which is kind of one of the great universities, he was in the college football hall of fame. And then later on, he married a famous Hollywood actress named Ella Raines. Now that, is one kind of life, isn't it? He had an incredible life. Mind you, some obituaries, the person is maybe not quite so impressive in terms of what they've achieved. Meet Edwin Traysman. Even his name isn't very cool. Is it? Edwin Traysman. Do you know what Edwin's greatest achievement in life was? He invented the frozen chip. That was his greatest. Now, look, don't get me wrong. That is more than I'll ever achieve. And already this week, I've been quite grateful to him for at least one meal. But let's face it, inventing the frozen chip is hardly aviation legend territory, is it? The photo, uh, the caption under his photo says, Edwin Traisman fried chips, then froze them. kind of gets you wondering about what is the highlight of your life going to be, doesn't it? What are we going to write in your obituary? What's going to be your crowning achievement? Well, look, whatever it is you do in your life, I think it's safe to say that your crowning achievement won't match Jesus' transfiguration. That was the absolute high point of Jesus' life. Take a look. Jesus said to his disciples, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. And about eight days after this, after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared with Jesus in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. Now that... He's at some kind of high point, right? So Jesus promises the kingdom of God. And then eight days later, he's glorified on a mountain and his face and his clothes become as white as lightning. And if you know your Old Testament, at this point, you're thinking, wow, Jesus is just like God because a radiant face and clothes, that's how God is described in Daniel and Ezekiel. And on a mountain, well, that's just like Mount Sinai, isn't it? And in fact, to highlight it, The two prophets who saw God's glory, Moses and Elijah, are there with Jesus. This is Jesus' frozen chip moment, the highlight of his life. Until you realise what Jesus is talking to them about. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour talking with Jesus they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Now, doesn't that strike you as strange? Here's Jesus at the absolute high point of his life, and they're talking about something else. And in fact, not just anything else. They're talking about Jesus' crucifixion, his departure, which is about to happen in Jerusalem. It's the high point And they're talking about Jesus' absolute low point. What on earth is happening? This is absolutely bizarre. Unless could it be that Jesus' death isn't actually the low point at all, but his greatest achievement? Could it be that on the cross, Jesus ascends far higher than he ever did on that mountain? See, tonight we're going to look at the cross for Christ's sake. Last night we saw how the cross really was for God's sake. Tonight we're going to see how the cross was for Christ's sake. It was the greatest, most glorious moment of his life. Let's pray and we'll ask God to show us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we have seen how horrific the cross was. We saw the shame, the humiliation, the forsakenness, the wrath of Jesus' death. Tonight, we also pray that you'll expand our view. Open our eyes to the glory of the cross, to the majesty of it, to Jesus' great victory. And we pray that as a result of this, we would love him more, worship him more fervently, and that we would love you more. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Monday night really was some harrowing stuff, wasn't it? Seeing Jesus go through all of this horrific stuff, abandonment and forsakenness on the cross. And yet what we saw last night was that this was actually the moment of God's glory. Because remember, what we saw was God glorified His name there. He showed His hesed and His emeth. And we, show, we saw that it was God's great victory over Satan. And the same is true for Jesus. Even as Jesus was crushed on the cross and even as Satan sent Jesus to that cross, Jesus reigned supreme over his four great enemies. He reigned supreme over sin, over the law, over death and over Satan. And of course, when you think about it, all four of those things are really linked together because they all work against us. You see it in Romans chapter 7, where Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I wouldn't have known what sin was except through the law. For I wouldn't have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law. But when the commandment came, Sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. Do you see how sin, the law, and death all work together? So, what the law does is it tells me right from wrong, the law tells me what coveting is. And it tells me what greed is and it tells me what lust is and it tells me that I mustn't do it. And in fact, until the law forbids coveting, I really can't do it, can I? Because I might never think of that sin. But once the law does forbid coveting, what happens? Well, in verse 9, sin springs to life. That rebellious part of my heart that really hates God and hates His rules and hates His commandments, it springs to life and it thinks, brilliant. Here is a new opportunity to rebel. Here is another opportunity for me to reject God and hate God and stick it to God. Show me something to covet right now. You see, the law acts as a goad and as an opportunity to my sin. I remember discovering this once when I went up up the top of the Empire State Building. Uh, has anyone ever been here, uh, anyone here have been up to the top of the Empire State Building? It's an amazing experience. I will never forget it for two extraordinary reasons. One of them has nothing to do with this talk, but I'll tell you anyway. One of them was the elevator ride up. Now, look, I don't actually know quite how tall the Empire State Building is, but it's massive. It's like two million stories high. It's incredibly high. And it actually takes you forever to get to the top in the elevator. And I walked into the elevator, and there's maybe room for 15, 20 people in the elevator. And as soon as the doors shut, something happened. I realised that I needed to, and how to put this politely, I needed to break wind. I'd had a hot dog, I'd had something suitably gross on the street and I tried to hold it in for maybe a second or two. I honestly really tried to hold it in but eventually I knew it was going to have to come out. I knew if it didn't come out, I was going to explode and so I let it out. It was silent. No one knew it was me except the Lord Jesus Christ. And I tell you, the effect in that confined space was electric. (laughs) It started, Americans are really polite and so it started with people just kind of twitching their noses a little bit and and kind of looking sideways at each other and and glancing to see who had the guilty smile on their face and then people started just discreetly covering their noses and, and rubbing their face and by the time we got to the top people were gagging it was, like, it was like one of those gas scenes from a World War I movie and the doors opened and people just kind of staggered out onto the viewing deck and I just sauntered out onto the promenade. This was my frozen ship moment. When I die on the tombstone, you, you put, he farted in the Empire State Building elevator. And almost as soon as I got to the top, I saw a sign. Do you want to know what the sign said? It said, do not spit off the Empire State Building. Now, look, I don't know about you, but until that moment, it had never occurred to me that I might want to spit off the top of the Empire State Building. It never occurred to me that faced with the view of the world's greatest city by night from that city's tallest building with all of its splendour laid before me, it never occurred to me that I think I'd want to hack off this. I would have thought enjoying the view was enough. But you know, as soon as I saw that sign, I could think of nothing else. <laughs> I had to spit off the top of the Empire State Building. I had to find out what's so amazing about spitting off the Empire State Building that they have to ban this with a sign. And, and what I found was that my mouth started to form great gobbets of spit <laughs> in preparation. It was like I had rabies or something. I was foaming at the mouth and, until finally I snuck around to a deserted part of the viewing deck and I did the fateful deed. I spat off the Empire State Building and it was magnificent. <laughs> it was truly superb. That, that feeling of pure rebellion, the elation of breaking a rule. But of course, see, the thing is, I had not thought of one very important fact that you might already have thought of. And that is the thing about very tall buildings, is that there is always an updraft of air. Which means that as soon as I spat off the Empire State Building, I then wore everything that i had spat off the Empire State Building. It wasn't so much a rule as a health warning. That's what I discovered. And I became a victim of my own sin. But you see, that's the way laws work. As soon as we see a law, we can't help but break it. Because in verse 8, sin seizes the opportunity that this law now provides and my sinful nature produces rebellion. And Paul says the result is death. Because right from the garden, the result of sin has always been death. And so verse 9, sin springs to life and I die. Do you see how working together, sin, the law and death are a formidable enemy? We have become slaves to all three of them. Until Jesus. Because Jesus' cross was his great victory over sin, the law, and death. Remember how Paul put it in Colossians chapter 2? He said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do you see what Jesus has done? By dying in our place, Jesus has done two things. Firstly, he's fulfilled the law because the law demanded our death. We're the ones who transgressed. We were the ones who saw the sign and sin sprang to life. And now the Lord demands our death. But Jesus has died the death for us. Jesus has died in our place. And so what that means is the law is now satisfied. And not just for your past sins, but for every sin that you will ever commit. You will never commit a sin that the law can now condemn you for because Jesus has already been condemned in your place. The law is a bill marked paid. But not only that, sin is finished too. Because see what Paul says there in verse 13. He says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. And Paul's not necessarily talking about the penalty of sin there. He's talking about the power of sin. You see, I was a slave to more than sin's penalty. I was also under its control. Paul calls me dead in the uncircumcision of my sinful nature. I understand Rowan had a perfect illustration for this recently. Remember when we were talking about Ephesians chapter 2 and he brought in that dead fish and he said, this is what we were like. As a marine biologist, I kind of think it's a good illustration. The fact that he didn't eat it afterwards kind of misses the point. But anyway, what's the point in killing a fish if you don't eat it? But anyway, good illustration up until that moment. We're like the dead fish. We can't turn back to God. We are completely under sin's control. But Paul says, Jesus has made us alive again at the cross. Look how Paul explains it in verse or 2 before. He says, In him you are also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. Here, Paul uses a different image. It's not so much the image of death that he uses, but the image of circumcision which is fairly brutal as an image when you think about. it. It's kind of vivid as well. He says, our, if, when you become a Christian, your sinful nature, that part of you that loves to rebel against God, that part of you that hates God, that always wants to break His rules, that part of you inside that is dead, that has now been cut off. It's been cut off like circumcision. And you kind of get the picture. That's the vivid image that Paul's using here. When you become a Christian... Your very nature changes. We're actually going to dig into this tomorrow night. But notice what this means now. It means that the law is defeated. And it means that sin is defeated. And now it means that death is defeated. And Jesus has reigned over all of them at the cross. The way Paul puts it is, it's not Jesus hanging up there being crucified. It's sin and the law and death being hung up there. And Jesus is crucifying them. You see, it's the cross for Jesus' sake. And when Jesus defeats all of those, he defeats our greatest foe, and that's Satan. Have you still got Revelation chapter 12 open? Have a look in Revelation chapter 12. This is is such a great passage. Revelation chapter 12. A great and wondrous sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. And then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns on his heads. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment it was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the desert to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. See, John sees a vision of a woman who was about to give birth. And standing in front of her is this great red dragon who is Satan. And we know he's Satan because we're told that down in verse 9. Have a look. Verse 9, he is that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. And so Satan is standing in front of this woman and he's waiting to devour her child the moment this child is born. Because you see, this child is God's king. He is quoting Psalm 2, the one who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. But as soon as the child is born, this, this king baby gets snatched up to God and the woman gets protected and it leads to a war in heaven. Have a look in verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he wasn't strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. That great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. You see, there's a great war in heaven. And the great climax of this war is that the dragon gets hurled out of heaven because he's not strong enough. He's flung down in defeat. And it's a fantastic vision, isn't it? You can imagine making a movie out of this. It's it's so vivid and what on earth is it about? Well, thankfully, John gets told exactly what it's about in verse 10. Have a look in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers, who accuses them before our God, day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. You see, what this vision is about is the coming of God's kingdom and the coming of the kingdom of God's Christ, his king, his ruler. Because look in verse 10. Satan has been hurled down, except he's not called Satan in verse 10. He's called by what his name Satan, actually means. That is, did you know that, that Satan is a name, first of all, and it's a name that means something. So we saw God's name last night. We saw that God's name was Yahweh, and it means essentially grace and truth, Hesed and Emeth. Here we learn what the name Satan means. It's the Hebrew word for accuser. Satan is the accuser. Because you see, that's what Satan does. Satan has an extraordinary strategy. He's the ultimate double crosser. So firstly, if you look in verse 9, firstly, Satan is the one who leads the whole world astray. Because what he does is he tempts us with his lies, just like he tempted Adam and Eve. So he says, look, Sleeping together before you get married, that's not really a sin. I mean, you love each other, don't you? How can something this loving ever be called a sin? Why would God ever be angry? Of course, God's not angry with you. God would never judge you. I mean, you're going to get married anyway, aren't you? You're already basically married. You're married to each other in your heart. You love each other. You're committed to each other. This is actually a beautiful thing that you're doing to each other. Go on. Go and do it. Love. You see, Satan lies to us and he leads us into sin. And then the very next thing he does is double cross us. Because he goes and he stands before God and he says, did you see what they just did, God? They were sexually immoral. And God, what does your law say? Your law says the sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And they broke your law. They were naked together. They did that, God. You must condemn them. You see, Satan is the ultimate double crosser. And yet now he's hurled down. Because look in verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. You see, Satan's blood has overcome, uh, Jesus' blood has overcome Satan and has hurled him out of heaven. Because Jesus was our lamb. He was the lamb who was sacrificed in our place. Jesus has paid for every sin that I've ever committed. And so now the accuser is silent. What can Satan accuse me of now? Oh, sure, Satan can point to my greed. And Satan can accuse me of lust and Satan can bring before God all of my anger. But each and every time Jesus will say my blood has paid the price for that. God's righteousness is satisfied. I died to pay the penalty for that. And so Satan's humiliated, he's silenced, he's nailed to the cross. Martin Luther tells a great story, the the reformer. He tells a wonderful story about a dream that he had and in the dream Satan comes before him and he confronts him with every sin that Luther has ever committed. All of his lies and all of his coarse language and all of his lust. It's this great long scroll of condemnation. And in the dream, Martin Luther says, yes, all this is true. But now, right at the bottom of the scroll, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all sin. And in the dream, Satan flees. Because his power is gone and he's gone for good because Jesus has given me his spirit. So John says in 1 John, he who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. But the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. You see, my sins in the past prove that I belong to Satan. I was part of his kingdom. But Jesus hasn't just removed Satan's accusation, he's also removed his power over me. He's given me the Holy Spirit. And as the Holy Spirit does his work in me, gradually, slowly, I'm changed. Jesus is changing me so that I'm no longer doing the devil's work. Now I do God's work. Jesus has defeated Satan and in heaven, Jesus' victory will be complete. Have a look in Revelation chapter 20. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulphur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. And they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then I saw a great white throne and Him who was seated on it and earth and sky fled from His presence and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. You see, in heaven, Jesus' victory will be complete. Satan will be thrown into the fiery lake of burning sulfur and then Jesus will judge the world. Jesus will judge humanity from his throne and every rebel will be condemned. They will all join their master in the lake of fire. Do you see what Jesus' cross was? It was his victory. Do you see the majesty beneath the grime? You see, the cross enthrones Jesus where he belongs. The cross was for Jesus' sake. But I imagine at this point, you're feeling deeply awkward about Jesus. Because what we've just seen is that Jesus will judge the world. We've just seen Jesus seated on a white throne in heaven and the earth and the sky flees from him and he holds eternity in people's hands. I wonder, for some of us, is this the first time that we're actually being confronted by this picture of Jesus? A Jesus who judges and condemns evil. You never realised Jesus was this great and powerful. Sometimes I think that Christians can have a piglet view of Jesus. Do you ever read the the Winnie the Pooh stories? The Winnie the Pooh stories were huge favourites in our family growing up. And in one of the books it says piglet is so small that he slips into a pocket where it's very comfortable to feel him when you're not quite sure whether twice seven is 12 or 22. It's actually 16. No, it's not. You see, Piglet is the comforter when Christopher Robin's not quite sure of the way and loads of Christians love to think of Jesus like that. We want a Jesus who will tell us that everything is all right. He'll tell us that I really am a nice person. And that I will pass my exams and that I will find a nice husband and that I am worthwhile and that someone does love me. And, you know, sometimes we do need to hear those things. And Jesus is so loving and he's so good that he often tells us those things. But Jesus is far too big to fit in your pocket. Jesus is far more than a comforter. He's the Satan crusher. He is the death destroyer and he is the judge of humanity. And everyone who faces him as an enemy will be thrown into the lake of fire forever. Jesus is not to be trifled with, is he? And he is not here for our comfort. We are here for his glory. We were created and saved for his sake and in fact to belong to him. That's the next way that the cross is for Jesus' sake. The cross is where Jesus bought our people for himself. Look how Christians are described in these verses up on the screen. He says, And you are also among those who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might belong to another. He who was a free man when he is called is Christ's slave. For you were bought at a price. Do you see who you are if you're a Christian? You have now become... Jesus' possession. He bought you on the cross for himself. That's what Acts chapter 20 says, isn't it? Jesus bought us at the price of his blood. It's this wonderful idea called redemption. You see, we were slaves. We were slaves to death and we were slaves to sin and to judgment and to Satan. But Jesus has bought us, redeemed us, Out of that slavery. He paid the ransom price for us, which was his blood. Now, at this point, we've got to get something straight. Jesus did not buy us from Satan. Sometimes people think, sometimes Christians think that when Jesus bought us and paid the price with his blood, that Jesus, that Satan was the one that he was buying us from. And in fact, if you've ever read the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's kind of what the line The Witch in the Wardrobe says. Just put up your hand if you've read The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. Put up your hand if you really love The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe. It's a wonderful story. I cry every time. In fact, one of the things that, one of the stories, famous stories within our family was I was reading The Line, The Witch in the Wardrobe to my two eldest children. It was one Easter, so Jesus' death is in the air and we're on holidays. And I was reading and we got to the point where Aslan, goes to the table and all the animals are hacking into him and they shave him and it's really awful and I've just got tears streaming down my face I was a mess and I look over and the two oldest children are just sitting there calm as anything, faces like stone and I'm like what, what on earth is going on here, what's the matter with you guys and a child who I won't, won't mention but happens to be in the room said <laughs> oh we know Aslan's Jesus, he's just going to rise from the dead <laughs> But do you notice what happens in the line the Witch and the Wardrobe? Aslan dies to pay the witch because the witch owns Edmund. Remember, there's that moment she says to him, all traitors in Narnia belong to me. And Aslan goes to that table to buy Edmund back from the witch. But Jesus did not pay Satan when he died on that cross. Jesus died to satisfy God. On the cross, we stood under God's penalty of death. We were convicted by God's laws. It was God's character that demanded the price. In fact, it was Jesus' character that demanded the price because Jesus is God the Son. Jesus actually paid the price of his own penalty when he died on the cross. And what that means is that we now belong to him. On that cross, Jesus bought you. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, you are now Jesus' slave. Have you ever thought of yourself as a slave? It's pretty confronting, isn't it? Because the world tells us that really everyone should be free. In fact, isn't it one of the great truisms that slavery is wrong? No, slavery is not wrong. Slavery is a good thing. Slavery is a wonderful thing. Otherwise, God is sinful. God can't be sinful Our form of slavery is what's wrong Humans taking other people as slaves That's what's wrong But slavery is actually a good thing, isn't it? Because we are slaves of the true master In fact, if you're a Christian You know that none of us are actually free, right? There's never ever been a human being in all of history that was free One, we're all slaves because we're all creatures We're creatures of a creator God. That means we're owned by the creator God from the moment we're born. On top of that, no person who's not a Christian is ever free because what have we seen? We've seen that we're slaves to sin and to death and to the law and to Satan. There's never been a free human being in all of history. Of course, if you're someone who's wrestling with the idea of the sovereignty of God, this is something to factor in, isn't it? Did you choose God? Well, yeah, but how? If I am a slave to sin... How can I ever choose the true God? If I'm a slave to rebelling against God, how can I ever choose to, to obey Him? How can I ever walk towards God if I'm a slave to sin? You can't. The only way anybody ever chooses to come to God is because the Holy Spirit enables them to do it. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3, that it's only by the Spirit that anyone can say that Jesus is Lord. Romans chapter 8, those who are, who are of the sinful nature cannot please God. We cannot obey his laws because we're slaves. So why would I expect to be free now that I've become a Christian? No, becoming a Christian is just having the right master, having the true master, the one who created me, the one who loves me, the one who knows what's best the one whose yoke is light and whose, whose burden is easy, the one in whose service is perfect freedom, that slavery is the best of all existences. But have you got that you're a slave? Has that occurred to you yet? Have you got that you don't have the right to decide what to do with your life? Have you got the idea that your life And what you're going to do with it, your body, none of those things belong to you. They belong to Jesus. Have you got that you don't have the right to choose your wife or your husband or your career? You don't have the right to choose where you're going to live. You don't have the right to choose what's best for you. Because, you see, on the cross, Jesus bought the rights to all of those things. And so for a Christian, getting married is an exercise in figuring out who your master wants you to marry. Not by emptying your head and waiting for God to put a name in it. No, by long, faithful, prayerful Bible reading. Asking Jesus to show you the kind of person that he thinks you should marry. Jesus, give me the wisdom to choose the wife who you think is best, not the one that I think is best. Jesus, make me attracted to the kind of person that you say is attractive, not the person who I think is attractive. Give me the wife who loves you, Jesus, more than she loves me. Give me the wife who's going to help me to spread the gospel, who's going to teach me to be more generous and more faithful, who's going to support me in mission. And in fact, Jesus, if you choose not to give me a wife at all, help me to praise you because you are my true master. That's what it means to be a slave and choosing a husband or wife. Choosing a job is an exercise in figuring out what your master wants you to do. And again, not by Jesus putting a job into your head. No, it's by the long faithful prayerful reading of the Bible to figure out what is the job that will help me to serve my master. That is, Christians don't choose jobs based on money. And we don't choose jobs based on status. And we don't choose jobs based on satisfaction. We choose jobs based on what will bring Jesus' glory. What job will most help me to serve my master Jesus? What job will help me to obey Jesus and will help me to have time to spread his kingdom? What job won't swallow up my time and my energy and my ambition because actually Jesus owns my time and my energy and my ambition? They are not mine to give to a job. What job will help me to love and serve and glorify Jesus for the rest of my life and pay and satisfaction don't come into it? The degree that you're doing doesn't come into it. Where does Jesus ever say that you have to work in the area that you studied? Jesus never says that. For us, a job is a means of serving Jesus. Do you see what it means to be a slave? Jesus has died and he owns, he has bought access to lordship over every single area of your life. It was the cross for Christ's sake. And at that point you think, well, that doesn't sound very loving of Jesus. He just did all of that for himself, that means. But remember, friends, God's not an idolater. And that means that God the Son isn't an idolater either. It would be wrong for Jesus to put you ahead of himself. Now, the fact is what is best for you is for you to be saved to love and serve him. That's what you were created for. That's what we were saved for. So you see, the cross is where Jesus died to defeat his enemies. The cross is where he bought a kingdom of slaves to serve the one true perfect master. But where we finish tonight is the same place as last night. The cross was all for Jesus' glory. God's glory was a big deal last night, wasn't it? Remember what we saw. We saw that Moses asked God to show him his glory. And what God did was declare His name Yahweh. And we saw those two great themes behind the name Yahweh. There was chesed, which is mercy, compassion, love, kindness. And there was also Mf, justice, truth, righteousness. And we saw that on the cross, those two great themes came crashing together. God was fully gracious on the cross as He saved His people. He was also fully just on the cross. The cross was the moment, the first moment in eternity where God fully expressed exactly who he is. And so it was glorious. But the thing is, right the way through the book of John, Jesus' glory is also a really huge deal. So Jesus reveals his glory when he turns water into wine in John 3. Jesus is glorified when he raises Lazarus from the dead. And in John 17, Jesus prays that we'll all see his glory. You see, Jesus' glory is this huge deal in John. In fact, Jesus' glory is mentioned more often in John than God's glory is. And Jesus' great moment of glory is actually his cross. Jesus called the cross the hour when the Son of Man is to be glorified. And at that point after night one, you think, how on earth can that be? How on earth can that God-forsaken, humiliating, sin-laden death ever be glorious? And the answer is because on the cross, Jesus was grace and truth. See, right at the beginning of the book of John, in John chapter one, Jesus is called the word Who became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Do you see what John's doing there? Do you see how he's echoing Exodus chapter 34 there? Jesus' glory is just like his Father's glory it's grace and it's truth. And the cross is the pinnacle of both. The cross is the pinnacle of grace because Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Those are Jesus' words. There is no greater sacrifice of love. There is no greater love than to sacrifice your life for your friends. Except Jesus didn't just lay down his life for his friends, did he? I mean, what sort of friend have I ever been to Jesus? When did I ever love Jesus? When was I ever faithful to Jesus? I have not been Jesus' friend. I've been his mortal enemy. And yet, how did Jesus feel about his enemies? When Jesus is confronted with his enemies, how does the God of grace feel about his enemies? Well, in Luke 13, Jesus looks over Jerusalem, the city that he knows is going to crucify him, the city of his enemies. And he says, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, And stone those who sent you. How often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing? Isn't that a beautiful image? Jesus is looking at the people who hate him, who he knows are going to crucify him, and he says, What I long to do is gather you together under my wings to protect you, to love you, to nurture you. In Luke 19, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem because he can see what they're about to do. Because you see, that's how the God of Hesed treats his enemies. The God of Hesed is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in faithfulness. He forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And the cross was the absolute pinnacle of Jesus Hesed. Jesus loved you when you had nothing but hatred for him. If I'd been there on that day, I wouldn't have protected Jesus. If I'd been there, I wouldn't have sided with Jesus. I would have been in the crowd. I would have been shouting abuse at Jesus. If I'd been there on that day, I would have spat on Jesus and I would have kicked him and I would have hated him because that is what is in my heart. But as Jesus dragged that cross along, it was love for me that made him do it. As Jesus was spat upon, it was love for you that made him endure it. And as he was beaten and as he was abandoned and as he was forsaken, that was all out of love. It was love that nailed Jesus to that cross. It was chesed. I tell you, if we had been there on that day, if we'd been sitting at the foot of the cross playing dice with those soldiers, we would have heard his prayer for us saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. And there is chesed at its most beautiful. You see, the cross is glorious. It's beyond glorious because there has never been a moment of chesed like that. In all of creation, there had never been a moment of compassion and mercy and kindness like that. In fact, Jesus had never had the opportunity to express his own hesed like that. I mean, think about it. When Jesus created us, it was an act of goodness. It was an act of kindness. But it wasn't an act of mercy, was it? Creation was not an act of hesed because there was no sin in the garden. There was nothing to forgive yet. And yet even after sin, God, Jesus showed mercy to Adam and Eve and Jesus showed mercy at the flood and he showed mercy to Israel. But even then it was a mercy of forgiveness, not a mercy of self-sacrifice yet. But on the cross, Jesus fully expressed everything about him that was gracious and merciful for the first moment in creation. God, Jesus, Hesed just burst into flower had burst upon the creation as he took all of God's limitless justice because he loved you that much. And in that moment, Jesus was fully, absolutely himself. And the universe saw his perfection. That's what's so beautiful about the cross. At that moment on the cross, the angels the demon Satan himself looked down and they saw displayed the perfection of Jesus' character. They saw how good and how kind and how merciful, how gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, how abounding in love and faithfulness Jesus fully was. For the first time in eternity on that cross, Jesus was fully, fully Yahweh. And it was glorious. Because nothing is so glorious as God being God. And yet it was also his MF. It was also the moment when Jesus was truly, truly just. Jesus says, for judgment I have come into this world. Do those words strike you as strange? Because John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It's easy to think of that one. But here Jesus says, for judgment, I have also come into the world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. In John 5, he says, moreover, the father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the son. You see, Jesus is God's true judge. And on the cross, Jesus fully judges. Before the cross, Jesus says, now here at the cross is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. That is two amazing things were happening on the cross at exactly the same time. One, God was pouring out his judgment on Jesus on the cross. God was pouring out his wrath and his anger and Jesus on the cross. But also at the very same moment, Jesus was judging the world. And Jesus was driving out Satan at exactly the same time. It's just the most extraordinary thing about the cross. We saw how Jesus judged Satan because he he cast him down. But Jesus also judges the world on the cross. He judges the world for our hatred and for our wickedness. Way back in John chapter 3, Jesus said, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world. And that's him in John chapter 1. Jesus is the light. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And Jesus' cross is the darkest moment of all. Jesus' cross was the darkest, most evil moment in all of human history because Jesus' cross was the moment that we showed how much we hate the light. The cross of Jesus was where we showed how much we hate truth because we took the one perfect human being who has ever lived. We took the one truly perfect and beautiful and lovely human being who has ever lived. We took the essence of perfection itself. We took the author of life. We took God himself and what did we do? We slaughtered him. The cross was the lowest point in all of human history. No human being can ever say we are good. No human being can ever say we are enlightened. Because as soon as you look at the cross, you see the nature of the human heart and it is darkness and wickedness and evil. The verdict on humanity was clear on that day. Jesus judged us by showing us exactly who we are. And again, that makes the cross glorious. Because on the cross, Jesus showed that sin really is sin. The cross shows the ugliness of the human heart. It holds a mirror up to all of our dark, God-hating willfulness. The fact is, we would rather kill God than worship Him. And that was Jesus' plan. That that wickedness be seen for what it was. Do you see how the cross was for Jesus' glory? Jesus' hesed and his emeth both come to their height in that moment. And that's far more important than anything that ever happened for us. I mean, yes, we were saved. Yes, we were justified. Yes, we had mercy. Yes, we were rescued, all of those things. But the greatest glory of the cross was that Jesus was himself. For the first time in all of eternity, Jesus was fully Hesed and fully emeth at exactly the same time. And so what looked like disgrace was actually glory abounding. What looked like humiliation was actually glory exceeding, glory to Jesus as God. And I tell you, as much as I love Jesus for my salvation, on the cross, I adore him for his perfection. I adore Jesus on that cross. I just sit at the foot of the cross and I gaze up at him and I am dumbstruck by his perfection. I sit amid all of the muck and the filth and I just bask in his grace and his truth. And yet again, Just like last night, there is something more to be seen at the cross, even than that. There's something deeper at the heart of the cross. And that is what happened in that moment, not between Jesus and the world, not between Jesus and us, but actually between Jesus and his Father. You want to know the most extraordinary thing about Jesus' cross? The cross was the moment when the Father loved the Son most of all. All the way through John, Jesus keeps telling us, the Father loves me. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. As the Father has loved me, so I loved you. All the way through John, Jesus keeps saying, my Father loves me. My Father loves me because he is God the Son. He's perfect. My Father is pleased with me. And yet as mad as it sounds, as ridiculous as it sounds, the father actually loved the son most on the cross. Even as God poured out his wrath and anger on Jesus, the father was actually loving Jesus. Because look what Jesus says in John 10. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. So the most amazing thing is, as God is punishing Jesus on the cross, he knows exactly who he is punishing. He knows that Jesus is the obedient son who's doing exactly what he commanded him. He knows that Jesus is fulfilling his will. He knows that Jesus is fulfilling the mission that God gave him and God loves him. Of course God knows those things. Otherwise, God would know less about the cross than we do, right? And so even as God punishes Jesus on the cross, he loves him. Even as God hates Jesus for sin, he loves him as the obedient child. Because on the cross, God never lost sight of how truly lovely Jesus is. The cross is this incredible moment of divine hatred and divine love being poured out at exactly the same time. So that even as God was abandoning and forsaking Jesus, He wasn't abandoning Him. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but only what the Father has taught me. And the one who sent me is with me. And has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And then in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, You will all leave me alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. How do we make sense of that? Jesus is abandoned by his Father on the cross, he's completely forsaken. The Father turns his face away, and yet in some way, he's not. In some way the Father is always with him which means that as Jesus hung there bleeding the Father was with him as Jesus was breathing his last breath his Father was still with him and like we saw in the first night what was the Holy Spirit doing the the Holy Spirit was supporting Jesus that is Jesus died more alone than any human being has ever been and yet he died deep and secure in his Father's love it's not the most amazing thing? The most amazing thing is that even as his fa- the father turned his back on Jesus, he delighted in him and he adored him. And in fact, Jesus does not go to hell. He goes to his father. Look how John describes Jesus' death in John 13. It was just before the Passover feast. And Jesus knew the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. You see, on the cross, Jesus went to his Father. Or John 13, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he's come from God and was returning to God. Somehow at that moment, at that moment when Jesus died on the cross, as he finished his work, He went home to his father. He ascended to his father's side. That's where Jesus was while his body was in the tomb. Jesus didn't go to hell for three days. No, at the very moment that he died, the very instant the price was paid, at the very second he says those words, it is finished, Jesus went home. Because he'd finished his great task and he'd completed his labour. And so he went home gloriously to his father's arms and the angels adored him. And all of heaven sang his praises. And there the father welcomed home his beloved son and he loved his son because he had been truly obedient to the very end. And the son basked in his father's love again. His body hung below, ravaged and beaten and broken on the cross, but the sun was not there anymore. No, the sun was enthroned and the sun was adored and he was cherished. And this is so hard to comprehend, isn't it? I mean, how big is the cross? And yet at the same time, how beautiful is it? How beautiful is this notion that even at the very moment God forsook his son, he never lost sight of who he was. He never lost sight of Jesus' beauty. And they never stopped loving each other. And so beyond all things, the cross is glorious. The cross is glorious because there we see God in perfection. Grace, truth, justice, mercy, divine love, divine justice on display for the whole universe. Don't you wish you could have been there to see the Son's homecoming? Wouldn't it have been amazing to see Jesus coming home to his Father having finished his work? In a way, we will. Because I think heaven is going to bring all of that to completion. But doesn't this change everything? Doesn't this change what you love? Is there anything in your life, even remotely, so worth loving as Jesus is? I mean, have you ever seen anything so enthralling and captivating and mesmerising as that moment between the Father and the Son on the cross? As earlier I said, Jesus owns you because he bought you as a slave and that's true. But I tell you what far more beautiful than that is, that Jesus captures our hearts on the cross, the Father and the Son together, they just capture our hearts. When I see what the Son was so willing to go through for His Father, and when I see what it cost the Father to do that to His Son, at that moment my heart is just taken captive by God. And at that moment I just want to spend everything I have got and every second I have got working out how I can love him more and I want to delve deeper into his character and I want to bask in his love for me and even more than that I want to finally understand better his love for himself I want to be captivated by this image of a father and son in love with each other now that just for this moment you can finally see what the universe is about clearly when all the garbage of your career and all the garbage of your ambitions and people's expectations, at this moment you have the clearest picture of what the universe is about. Is there anything that is a millionth worth loving as Jesus is? Just love him. Just spend the rest of your life crowning Jesus in your heart. And love him, and whatever loving Jesus demands, you do that. And wherever loving Jesus sends you, you go. And whatever loving Jesus asks of you, you give. Not because you're a slave, but because you've willingly given him your heart. Let's pray. Our Father we so praise and love and adore you because at that moment on the cross, you loved your son. Even as you punished him for sin, even as you forsook him, even as you struck him and smote him, even as you pierced him, you knew his perfections and you loved him. And we praise you that at his death, you welcomed him home. What a cherished thought that at that moment, Jesus ascended into heaven, surrounded by joy and adulation and tumult, going to you to hear you say to him, well done, my son. Oh, Father, that warms our hearts. You are more beautiful and more perfect more gracious, more truthful, more just and more merciful than anything we have ever seen. We pray that we would live for your glory. We pray that our hearts might be captured for your love. We pray that we would fall out of love with this world and more and more deeply in love with you for the rest of our lives. Amen.